Thank you, man. I so appreciate that. Aren't you glad that Jesus reigns and that he is in charge of all things? How uplifting that was. Well, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and that's going to be part of our message today, how Jesus is reigning, how he has everything under control. Mark chapter 14 and verse 27. Let's pray for Pastor Smith. He is not uh, feeling well this morning. He is sick, and of course, I was ill last week, so there is definitely something going around. So just pray for him uh, at this time. Also, I really appreciate the men who have worked so hard on the lobby. It's beautiful, isn't it? It just opens the whole thing up, and it's so light and airy, and uh, those men have worked so hard and so diligently, and they do a tremendous job. And we really appreciate them and, and their efforts. We, my wife and I uh, went to uh, Wisconsin on Friday. We, uh, I think we drove halfway and then flew the other half. Uh, because of fuel prices, sometimes you have to uh, do whatever you can. And uh, we saw Bobby and Kenny, and I believe there are some pictures of, of them on Facebook. You may not recognize them. Uh, they were in a play. Uh, called The Miracle Worker, and so you might want to check and see if you can recognize them in, in, in their makeup. Uh, Bobby's hair is still black, and it's probably going to be for the next few months, so we were able to give him a hard time about that. Uh, but uh, he and Kenny are, are doing well, and Ken and Beth traveled up there, and we had a good time uh, together. Mark chapter 14, we're going to talk today about the scandal of the cross. Usually we're in the book of Mark on Sunday nights, but the Lord really laid this upon my heart. Mark chapter 14 and verse 27, as they finish the Last Supper, the Bible says in verse 27, and Jesus saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. But he spake, Peter, the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this portion of your word, help us to understand that suffering that what you call offense in this passage, that disappointment, is a part of this life. But we also thank you that for those who know Christ as personal Savior, that one day there will be vindication. But Lord, help us to learn these lessons from these disciples as we look to your word today. Help us to take instruction and by the power of your Holy Spirit to be ready when those times come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Have you ever experienced disappointment with God? For anyone who has been saved, for anyone who has known Christ as Savior any length of time, I would say that you have probably experienced some sort of disappointment with God. You expected something and it didn't happen the way you thought that it would. And today, what I want to explore is how Jesus' disciples faced disappointment. And some of the lessons that we can learn from this. I want you to notice, number one in your outline, the prediction of abandonment. Jesus knew that this would happen. If you've been with us on Sunday nights, then you'll know that Mark chapter 14 really revolves around the theme of the abandonment of Christ, the abandonment of Jesus. As all of these events begin, begin to swirl around him, and he makes this prediction in verse 27. He says, all of you shall be offended. Now I'm going to give the, the Greek form of this, and still in anglicized form, but we could say it this way, all of you will be scandalized. All of you will be scandalized because of what is going to happen to me. It all concerns me, Jesus says. All of you will be scandalized. Now the Greek word here for offended or scandalized has to do with falling into a trap. It could also be taking offense at, at something that someone has done, and that's usually how we use the term. But it also means falling into a trap, and it also has somewhat the idea that you trusted in something and it disappoints you. You put your foot on a board and suddenly it gives way. You sit in a, a chair that is broken and suddenly it falls underneath you. You trusted in something. You put your faith in something, and yet it disappoints you. And that really is the idea here. D. Edmund Hebert says this, It does not mean that the disciples would feel offense at Jesus personally, but that they would be caught and overwhelmed by what would happen to him that very night. It would stagger their faith and shake their confidence in him as the Messiah. It would challenge their loyalty to him. Have you ever been through anything like that in your life where your faith has been shaken to the core? The disciples were disappointed by something in which or in whom they had placed their trust. When I was a youngster, for one of my birthday presents when I was a lad, my parents put a swing in our magnolia tree. Now, I don't know if you really have magnolias here in, in South Jersey. I haven't seen very many, but they're all over the South. Has anyone seen a magnolia tree? Okay, they have big, broad leaves where they make a mess in someone's yard. They really do. It takes forever to rake them up, and it takes them a while to rot. Uh, they're very, very strong, sturdy Leaves And there's something else about the magnolia, and we had a huge one in our yard. Its root system, much of its root system, is above ground. 
So if there were ever a tree designed to break the bones of kids, it's the magnolia tree. Because you know what kids are going to do. We used to climb that tree all the time. And wonder of wonders, by the way, I've never broken a bone in my life. Uh, now, I may do that this week because I said that. But uh, anyway, up to this point, I have never broken any bones in my body. And that is a miracle in and of itself because of how many times I fell out of that tree uh, when I was climbing it. And, you know, my parents would put this swing in it. And, and all the neighborhood kids enjoyed it. Uh, boy, well, what a liability that was, but we won't go there. But anyway, uh, I remember, though, it was about, uh, you know, I enjoyed this swing for a long time. I was quite young when it was put up in the tree. And uh, I guess it was about, I don't know, four or five years later. I got into this tree, and I was swinging in it just like usual. And it was a really a big swing. It had a big arc. And it just happened in an instant. All of a sudden, I was looking up, okay, into the boughs of that tree. And uh, I was pinned against the root system of the tree. And again, did not break any bones. But see, I trusted this rope just like always. But eventually it broke. For four or five years, I had been used to this same routine. I had, uh, had fun swinging in this tree, but then one day the rope broke. And you know, that's sort of the idea here. These men had been with Jesus for three years, and they were expecting a kingdom. In fact, up to the very last moment, they were arguing about who was going to be next to the throne. That was the thing that was on their minds. And you see, my friends, I want to make this clear. It was not Christ himself who disappointed them. They were disappointed and they were disillusioned because of their own false expectations of how Christianity was supposed to work, of how life was supposed to work. They had expected something very, very different. And there may be some of you out there and you are disappointed and disillusioned with God. You've got something against God. You've got a case against Him. Because my marriage didn't work out the way that it should have. Because my job has not been as fulfilling. Because I haven't achieved what I wanted to in life. And, and when I was young, I, I had this idea in my mind of how things were going to go. And I had everything mapped out according to my plan. Not God's, but my plan. And then things don't work out that way. And who do we blame? We blame God. It wasn't God's plan. But you see, that's where we make ourselves God. And that's basic idolatry in a nutshell. We have a plan. And when God doesn't work according to my plan, I get angry. I get upset. You know, we look at other people. Whether they're saved or unsaved, you know, it worked out for them in a certain way. And, and we kind of take that as a pattern for us when... God doesn't always intend for that to happen for us. And maybe these other people, maybe they face sufferings that we could never imagine, that we never knew about anyway. 
But we always have this idea in mind. And much of the Christian world today does not help. There, there's a whole faction of Christianity, the your best life now faction, the prosperity gospel, which says that everything is supposed to go your way. You're always supposed to be healthy. You always have to have uh, enough money in the bank and, and everything has to go well or, or something's wrong with you or in your faith and, and, and it causes disappointment with God. You see, Jesus had told them what was going to happen and that's the whole context of this. One commentator divides Mark into three sections and that middle section of Mark revolves around three predictions and you may want to write these down. They're kind of easy to remember. Mark 8.31 is one. Mark 9.31 is another. And you would almost have Mark 10.31, but it's the next verse, okay? And by the way, the verse divisions were not inspired. They were added later for our help. But in Mark 10.32, you have what follows another passion prediction. And the whole middle section of the book of Mark revolves around those predictions. God told these men exactly what was going to happen. But why didn't they listen? They heard, but they didn't listen. You see, they had their own plan in mind, their own paradigm for how life was supposed to work. There was supposed to be an earthly kingdom. And by the way, there will be one day when Jesus returns, but not now, not the first time that he came. He came to die. He came to suffer. And that was not part of their experience. In a recent article, Dr. Mark Farnham from Westminster Theological Seminary gives 10 reasons why professing Christians abandoned their faith. And one of the buzzwords is deconstruction, a word that's being bandied about a lot lately. Here's the first. They have experienced some hurt, trauma, or abuse at the hands of professing Christians, churches, and or pastors. That's very real. Boy, God forbid that that would ever happen here. But some people are hurt by churches. They're hurt by pastors. They're hurt by Christian leaders. It's no excuse. I'm not excusing anyone because God is not the one to blame. But there are a lot of people who take it out on God because they are so hurt by what the church has done to them. Number two, they have spent too much time reading, listening, watching, and talking to people, espousing weak theology, heresy, and the hiss of the serpent asking, did God really say? Well, there's so much I could say about this one. I don't care how smart you are. If you listen to a constant parade of this, it will affect you. It will influence you. Be careful what you are filling your mind with. Number three. They have wittingly or unwittingly absorbed and adopted naturalistic, atheistic, and hedonistic assumptions and presuppositions. In other words, they're taking the world's philosophy and then critique the Bible in light of those. So you see, it's the other way around. We start from the standpoint of human philosophy and then we work to Scripture 
And if Scripture agrees, fine. If it doesn't, oh well. We go with human philosophy or science, modern day science. That's the stance. And that's backward, my friend. If you're going to be a biblicist, if you're going to say you are who you say you are, that's not the way it works. Number four, they have tired of the scorn, ridicule, and pressure of the unbelieving world and find it easier to abandon the faith just to get along. You could say this happened to the disciples in one sense. Number five, they had deeply felt expectations for life and what God would do. And when disappointed, could not bear the thought of worshiping the God they feel has let them down. Number six, they have misunderstood and misinterpreted the Bible's revelation about the character and actions of God and have come to believe that they are more moral than God and now stand in condemnation of God's character and His actions in the pages of Scripture. Number seven, they grew up in legalistic churches and families where an abundance of man-made rules were added to the gospel and to God's moral law. Boy, this is something we have to constantly be careful of. At some point, they tired of their oppressive environments and could not separate true Christianity from legalism. And so they left the faith. Number eight, they fed on liberal social justice and incipient Marxism and found the Bible's acceptance of inequality because of the curse of sin and the Bible's call to suffering lacking according to their new belief system that salvation is deliverance from inequality. And by the way, that is the new belief going on today, that salvation is deliverance from inequality. That's not what the Bible teaches, my friend. We're not in heaven yet. We still live in a sin-cursed world. And the Bible calls us to suffer, yes, for righteousness, even when things are not fair. The Bible calls us to suffer righteously. Well, there's so many things I could say about each one of these. Number nine, they no longer wish to be bound to the biblical ethic, most often related to the Bible's clear restriction of sexual activity to one man and one woman in a monogamous covenant of marriage. They wanted to have sex and not feel guilty about it. And that's what it all comes down to for number nine. They didn't want God's boundaries in their lives, and so they abandoned the Bible. Number 10, they were never true believers to begin with. Farnham says, they are apostates who posed as Christians very convincingly and for a long time. Is this what the Bible teaches? 1 John 2 and verse 19, yeah, it does. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, do you know what comes next? They would no doubt have continued with us. And that's the test. My friend, the saints will persevere by the grace of God. That is a truth that is taught in Scripture. In fact, in verse 20, 1 John 2, 20, John says, but ye have an unction from the Holy One. You, in other words, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells you what the truth is. He ministers to your spirit. 
And so Christians, I believe, can be led away for a time, but not permanently. Not permanently. They will eventually come back because they have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Either that or the Lord has to take their life. But one way or another, he's going to bring them back to him because they belong to him. It's about a personal relationship with God. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a just man or a righteous man falleth seven times, and then what? And riseth up again. Yeah, we fall. We fall victim to disappointment, to disillusionment. But if you're truly saved, you'll get back up by the grace of God. And we see that with 11 of these men. We don't see it with Judas Iscariot. And that's significant. Yes, people, Christians, can commit terrible sins like denying Christ. But there's a difference between a Peter and a Judas. A big difference. One of them knows God personally, the other doesn't. There's a big difference between a King David and someone like a King Saul. One of them knows God and the other, I'm not really sure that Saul ever knew God. I'm not the ultimate judge of his heart. Yes, there was disillusionment, there was disappointment, but that was because of their own faulty expectations. They had a plan, but they had ignored God's plan. Maybe some of you are like that today. Maybe you've been disappointed and hurt. And I want to encourage you. I certainly don't want to add to the pain that anyone has experienced, but I want to say this, and that, that is, in the end, God does not disappoint. He is going to give light in the end. Don't turn your back upon God. Continue, persevere by His grace. Do not turn your back on Him. There is no other way of salvation. No other way. You know, even Peter himself, when the great crowds began to melt away from Christ because of his hard sayings, Jesus said, will you also go away? Remember what Peter said? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. You're the one who holds eternal life. There is no one else to turn to. My friends, our Savior is the one who suffered. He knows what suffering is all about. You say, I'm disappointed with God for what He's done to me because my life didn't turn out the way I thought it should. God just doesn't understand. He, he sits in heaven. He is so far from suffering. Folks, God came to this earth in human flesh and suffered on a cross for our sins. He paid the penalty that we could not pay without an eternity in the lake of fire. He knew what suffering was all about, suffering from men, suffering from the Father. He knew what it was all about more than any of us could even fathom. He endured the greatest suffering ever. Jesus does understand. He does know what you're going through. You see, notice the prophecy. Letter B, if you'll notice in this verse, verse 27, he said, you'll all be scandalized. And this is 
is going to go according to plan. This is not something that happened by chance. It's not something that just all of a sudden came up out of the blue. This is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament that was part of God's eternal plan. I will smite the shepherd. You notice that in verse 27? I will smite the shepherd. This is from Zechariah chapter 13, if you want to turn here. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. We don't often turn to the book of Zechariah, but what a great book it is. In Zechariah 13 and verse 7, we find this messianic prophecy, this prophecy about Jesus. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Now, who is making this statement? Let me start out with that. It is God the Father himself who is saying this. Okay? Mark, or Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Awake, O sword! Someone's going to die, in other words. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And who is the shepherd? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're going to find out. And against the man that is my fellow. And you may want to underline or circle that word. That's an important word saith the Lord of hosts. So God is saying this. Smite the shepherd, and there it is. And the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones, referring to the disciples. So who is the one making the statement? Well, God the Father. Who is the object of this striking? God the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the word fellow means a close relation, or a blood associate. It's the closest term to a person that can be used. C.F. Kyle, famous Hebrew scholar, explains, he whom God calls his fellow in the King James or neighbor cannot be a mere man, but can only be one who is divine. God the Father refers to a man who is his fellow, who is his equal, is what he's saying. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons and one God. Jesus was not an inferior God. There's no such thing as an inferior God. You're either God or not. He was God the Son. The Father could only say this about the Son or the Holy Spirit. The prophecy then describes how God the Father himself struck the Savior. And this is exactly what Isaiah chapter 53 says. If you want to go there and, and leave your place there in Mark, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. That famous passage about the suffering servant of Jehovah, Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Yes, Christ suffered, and in fact, he suffered for our sin, not for his own. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried, what? Our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's how we knew him. As Hebert says, Christ saw his coming sufferings as not just inflicted by men, but by God himself. The shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not be smitten contrary to divine providence. 
And my friends, let me encourage you with this. No suffering that we go through in this life, no suffering befalls us outside of God's divine plan. It has a purpose. And it's not for our comfort because there's something that is so much more important than our comfort. And that is knowing God personally, knowing Him more, enjoying Him more, walking with Him more than we ever have. And it's amazing how in the Bible, the very first books of the Bible talk about suffering. You see in the book of Genesis, we see a man named Abraham who was given a promise that he would have a son. And how long did he have to wait? He was 100 years old before it came true. But it did. He was not disappointed. In this very book, the first book that we have in, in our Bible, the book of Genesis, the historical narrative of Joseph tells us about a young man, and, and God says, you're going to rule over your brethren. And then he's sold into slavery. Not only that, but he's accused as one who sexually assaulted someone else. He's thrown into prison. Imagine what Joseph thought. How in the world am I ever going to be a ruler? I've got a rap sheet. And by the way, it's not even my fault. I'm an ex-convict. And it seems like every time I get close to God's goal, every time somebody puts me in a position of leadership, the sledgehammer comes down. And I go even lower than before. Joseph never said that. We don't know what he said, but the Bible says the Lord was with him. And he was obedient. He was submissive to God. And he obeyed God. That's, he just submitted himself to God wherever he was. And guess what? He did rule over his brethren. He became the prime minister over the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. You see, only God can do that. Job, look at Job, a very early book, not in the order in which we have it, but happened very, very early in the history of, of Scripture. And he says, I have heard of thee of the, of the hearing, by the hearing of the ear. In other words, that, you know, after I, before I suffered, I, I only knew you to a certain extent, but because of what you have brought me through, now mine eye seeth thee. In other words, I know you so much better now. And that was the whole goal in the end, was to know God better. Listen, it's not about comfort on this earth. We'll have a whole eternity to enjoy God's comfort. But not on this earth is it ever promised to us. And that's not the goal anyway. The goal is to know God more. And there's something about suffering that does that for us. It's not that we, we wish for it, and we certainly don't want it because of our own sin, but there's something about suffering that humbles us and makes us more open to God. You think these disciples were humble? They had a lot to learn at this point. Number two, and, and we've got to wrap things up, but number two, the prediction of restoration. Jesus said, but after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Don't miss this. This is the promise God will not disappoint you in the end. He would not be dead and gone. But he was going to see them again. In fact, it would come very, very quickly. And my friend, there is coming a day of vindication. You can rest assured ultimately that you will not be ashamed and disappointed. 
and that what you have put your faith and hope in is going to be shown to be right and true, and it is not going to be in vain. Number three, the protest against the prediction. Did they really learn this lesson? I'm going to return to this later on in the book of Mark, but they didn't really understand. And Peter himself makes this statement. And, you know, you really get the sense that Peter is a know-it-all, like so many of us. And I'm not just picking on Peter, because all the rest of the disciples said the same thing. You know, that's how so many of us are. We know everything. We, we don't even give God time to speak. We're already talking. When we just need to be listening and hearing the voice of God. But, oh, we've got this vast treasure trove of knowledge. But what happens when the pressure comes? You know, young people, what happens when an ungodly, unbelieving professor starts to play havoc with your faith and you have never before heard these things? What are you going to do then when he starts to tear the Bible apart? How are you going to react? When suddenly you think to yourself, oh my, have I put my trust in something that is vain? What are you going to do then when the pressure's on? You see, this is the time to get ready, always to be ready and to be watchful. What happens when you come to that point in life, maybe when a loved one is taken tragically, when you encounter some other type of, of catastrophic event that you never expected? What happens when the pressure's on? You see, it's easy to come down hard on these men, but their whole worldview was turned upside down. We look at it from our point of view from the past, but these men expected none of these things to happen. They were ready to go to the palace, and yet their Savior was led to the cross. It totally upended everything that they had been thinking and expecting. What happens with you when that incident you never expected occurs? Are you going to stay faithful to the Lord? As we'll see later on in this book, Jesus never fails. Never. And he did go before them, just as he said. 1 Peter 1.7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Our faith is being refined. God, help us to stay strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you never fail. Jesus never fails. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we pray that we would fortify ourselves by your spirit and by your word, that when the storms of life come, that we would endure because our house is founded upon the rock who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who never fails, who never disappoints. We thank you for that.